Welcome to the Elk Talk Podcast with Randy Newberg and Corey Jacobson. Presented by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. The goal is what little you and I know about elk hunting, we share with people. I've got an elk building, it's like 120 yards away, what do I do? First off, the thought would never cross my mind when an elk being 120 yards away to call anybody <laughs> on a cell phone. <laughs> All elk. All the time. Only elk. Only elk. Well, it's us having conversations. So we usually go down some rabbit holes. But if you hunt with Corey Jacobson, you will find the landscape is full of rabbit holes. We're just going to make this up as we go. And you look at it like, oh, that's a target-rich environment. But if you're trying to single one out, a solo target there is much easier to go into than a, a big group. We record everything, so there's no BS and no lying, no faking it with us. <laughs> Did we hit the record I button? I forgot to hit the record <laughs> button. If you want to know something about elk hunting, this probably isn't the podcast to listen to. <laughs> Should we give them a list of all the other podcasts wow. where they might learn something? <laughs> The Elk Talk Podcast is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, ensuring the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting heritage. To become a member, go to rmef.org. And the podcast is also brought to you by OnX Maps. And with OnX Maps, you can know where you stand with the most accurate hunting GPS tech on the market with land ownership maps that work offline. Go to onxmaps.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 20% when you sign up for an app membership at onxmaps.com. The podcast is also brought to you by Gerber. Uh, go to gerbergear.com and learn about the knives, the vital, the big game vital, the Gator Premium, all the things that we use when we're out in the woods and not just knives, but also some really cool multi-tools that they have. We're also proud to partner with Sitka Gear. And if you go to sitkagear.com, you'll see their full line of clothing. And their tagline is turning clothing into gear. And they are doing that through advanced technology that allows you to stay in the field longer, hunt harder, and stay safer. The Elk Talk podcast is also brought to you by GoHunt.com. Uh, go to GoHunt.com and sign up for the Insider. Um, the, the insider is changing how haunts and hunting information are found. No doubt about that. Use promo code ELKTALK, and when you do, when you sign up for the insider, you're going to get $50 of store credit, mad money, in their gear shop. And we are also brought to you by Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. And Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls is the original designer and inventor of the pallet plate diaphragm that's completely changed the way elk calls are made and used. And to find out more and to order your elk calls, go to RockyMountainHuntingCalls.com or BuglingBull.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 15% on all of your elk calls and elk call accessories. And with that, Corey... We are ready to get into it. Let's jump into it. All right, folks. We are here at uh, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, the Elk Camp and Mountain Festival. And the scheduling of things is that uh, Corey's just wrapping up the World Elk Calling Championship. And I was down there waiting for him and uh, realized that he's a pretty popular guy at an elk calling contest. And so... Uh, 
he might be here a few minutes late. He, he's getting interrupted along the way. And so what we're going to do, kind of like the last Q&A podcast, we uh, take questions from whoever, and Gerber gives them a knife. Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls gives them a, a, a call. And since here we don't have a mic in the audience, we'll have to repeat the question back. But anyhow, going to be fun. It might be just me to start with, but when Corey gets here, he can answer all the rest of them. Well, folks, Corey's not here, so we're going to go with it. Um, so how this works, uh, I don't know if Corey's going to get here. I'm pretty sure he will. But when we do these, anyone who has a question, uh, you ask, raise your hand, and there's an orange box right here that they'll throw that to you. And whoever asks a question, Gerber's going to give you a free Gerber Vital knife, the same knife that we use. And then Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls is going to give you a free elk call. So I don't know if there are people. Oh, we got the Gerber folks here. I don't know who's here from Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls, but they'll be here. And uh, we'll make note of uh, whoever asks a question. We'll repeat it back because you're going to be on our Elk Talk podcast. So don't be bashful. You know, if, if you got a question, the odds are, our audience that listens to this podcast probably has the same question. So uh, usually Corey and I tell a big lie before we get started. And since he's not here, I can tell pretty much anything I want until he gets here. And then all of you will have to kind of cover my tracks. So, oh no, Randy didn't say that. Randy wouldn't say that about you. But uh, the whole idea of this podcast is do whatever we can to try improve the the amount of information that's out there for mostly public land elk hunting. And uh, to do that, we need to know what a lot of you are thinking. And Corey will agree that neither of us are really good at elk hunting. We just get to do it a lot. Uh, you know, kind of like if you get to clean house a lot, you're going to be a pretty good janitor. If your wife has you mow the lawn a lot, uh, you're going to be pretty good at mowing the lawn. Uh, it's kind of how it is with us elk hunting. It, <clears throat> what we don't have in skill, we make up for volume of opportunity. So any question that you have, just raise your hand along the way. Oh, look right here. We already got our first question. So we got a mic right there. Hopefully I can, hopefully I can hear it and... Uh, We'll see how this goes. I'm a relatively new elk hunter, and besides watching your specials on Netflix and Randy's online program and things like that, where are some sources that I could go specifically towards elk behavior, like some universities that may have studied it or some publications that I could read that would make me a better understand their behavior a little better? That's, uh, how do we end up with the first question being such a good question? And the reason I say that, it, <laughs> you came all the way from Texas? Wow. So the, that gets right to the core of, of learning about elk because everybody was a new elk hunter at some point. I always tell the story. It took me six years before I shot my first elk and I thought that buying some sort of new gadget or some sort of new item was what would get me over the hump to shoot an elk. Finally, I realized I didn't know much about elk. So 
there's a book called The Elk and Elk Ecology that I tell people. It's by Jack Ward Thomas. Uh, you can get it from the Wildlife Management Institute. It's pretty heavy reading. I mean, Jack had a PhD in all kinds of things, so it's, it, it, there's a lot there. But some of the greatest places of information that we get is from range managers for the BLM, the Forest Service, your state agency. Uh, they have done a lot of research. And it, the, the good part of it is it's pretty specific to where you're probably going to be hunting. So if you go to, let's say you're hunting in, I'll say Craig, Colorado, you will find a lot of BLM research has been done on grazing allotments about what competition there might be for forage, just as an example. Uh, you'll find where Colorado Parks and Wildlife has done a lot. And then the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation has sponsored a ton of research in the Starkey Experimental Forest. If you ever get a chance, go and Google Starkey Experimental Forest Elk. There will be so many articles there about how elk respond to hunting pressure, how elk respond to drought, how elk respond to roads, what's their preferred bedding cover, what's their preferred distance from this or that, how often do they feed in a day, how it's... But I'm an accountant, so I'm not really good at scientific stuff. I, I need to read the intro paragraph of what it's going to talk about and then these scientists, I see some of them out there smiling at me, uh, they, they have all of this information about methodology and how we did it and transects and blah, 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 and probabilities. I go to the last page where it's summary conclusion. <laughs> summary conclusion might be something like, oh, in early September, the preferred forage is this grass at this elevation. That's what I really wanted to know. So... It's a lot of time invested in research and knowledge, but it'll, it'll pay big, big dividends. Because I always tell people that what you're most interested in is where are the elk at when you have your tag? It doesn't matter where they're at in July because you don't have a tag then. You have a tag in October. And they move across the landscapes using different parts of the landscapes at different times of the year. So you're focused on where, where will they be or what need will they be satisfying during the period when I have my tag, and that is where you will find them. And so those are great resources. I, I hate to inundate all the BLM biologists, the Forest Service biologists, the rain con, range cons, all those people who do that great work, but there are really, really good reports out there that'll help fill in a lot of that stuff. That hopefully that answers some of the question. So I I already forgot the first rule is when you say your question, I gotta read it back. So the question was, where are other resources that I can help fill in my elk hunting knowledge? Is that did I paraphrase that correctly? Towards elk behaviors. Yeah. All right. Well I made that one up and nobody left. So <laughs> maybe maybe we can do two in a row and we'll we'll fake it and no one will leave. Kobe. All right, Randy, so my name is Kobe. Um, you talk a lot about keeping the public lands in public hands. Um, I'm just wondering, as a 19-year-old and as the public, what's the biggest thing that we can do to make that happen? Because especially at my young age, I don't feel like I have much of a voice yet. Um, I'm just wondering what I can do 
is to keep my part. So Colby says, as a 19-year-old, what can I do to have my voice heard in the effort to keep public lands in public hands? Did I say that right, Colby? All right. Uh, don't discount the fact that you're 19. It doesn't matter if you're 19 or if you're old and gray like I am. Uh, your vote counts, your voice counts. And if there's one benefit of what I do and how many years I've been doing it is I end up being engaged in a lot of the policy. I call it policy. It's really politics, but it sounds better when you say engaged in policy. Because as quick as you say, yeah, I'm engaged in politics, people, their eyes glaze over. No one wants to be engaged in politics. But there's a multitude of things you can do, and you can do them yourself. If you're not a group kind of person, you say, uh, you know, I'm really not interested in being part of this group or that group. Fine. Doing it yourself, you can do it. You can be do it through part of a formal group. Uh, don't underestimate the value of a well-informed constituent. And don't underestimate the value of five well-informed constituents. And so I'll relay an example that a, a U.S. senator told me. I, I asked them kind of this same question of, how do you decide whether one of these issues is worth your time. Well, if we get an email or two or a phone call or two, one of the staffers will handle it. If we get five emails or five phone calls, my chief of staff is going to handle it. If we get 10 emails or 10 phone calls on the same topic, my chief of staff is coming to me, and the next time we go back home, we're meeting with those people. So... Well, like I said, whether it's you or you, you got a, a bunch of hunting friends or other people who are concerned, engaging in your elected officials and, and whether it's your county commission, whether it's your state legislature, your, your federally elected people, that's one way. The other way is just being out there for volunteer projects, uh, volunteer fundraising, volunteer whatever for, for formal groups. And sometimes people say, you know, I don't mind being part of something, but I'm, I'm not the public speaker. Uh, if there's one unfortunate thing about having a big mouth, you get appointed as the public speaker all the time. And most hunters I've found don't like to speak in public. But I took a year of professional speaking in college, so I get up here and I, it doesn't bother me at all to make a fool of myself. Uh, so we each have, I, I say that, that we each have our own role of how we can make a difference in, in an organization. And a lot of times organizations are helpful because you bring forth a number of people rather than just your own voice. Um, so... Whatever it is, find your passion that you're passionate about. Because if you're trying to make a difference with something that you're really not that fired up about, it's going to be more like work. If it's something you're really passionate about, like public lands and hunting, you're going to find time to fit it in your calendar. Because conservation has three common components. It's never easy. It's always uncomfortable because someone's going to be upset with you no matter what position you advocate for. As an example, my brother, he'll read some of the things I write or some of the things I say, and he'll call me up and tell me what an idiot I am. So you just got to accept the fact that not everyone's going to agree with you. And it's usually inconvenient. We all have jobs and families and everything else, so we got to make time for it in our calendar. And if it's not something you're really passionate about, 
it's hard to fit that into your scarce time. So uh, as far as priority of things, uh, if you talk to any elected official, they will tell you that a phone call is the most valuable, most effective thing. An email, yeah, if there's enough of them. If it's a like a form letter email, uh, they get those by the thousands and thousands. They acknowledge them, but if they're getting a phone call from you or you know your county commissioner and their county commissioner calls them, you're making progress. You may not know it right away, but you're making progress. So I, those are things that I've used and over time, the people involved in policy have told me make a difference. Uh, the other part, <clears throat> a lot of the agencies have public hearings, public comment periods, whether online, you can write a letter or you can show up and give your testimony. I'm amazed at how many hunters complain about a policy decision and they didn't show up to comment. It's like, well, you had your chance, but you know, they, they don't look you up in the phone book and say, hey, what do you think about this? You have to take the time to be engaged. So those are, those are things you can do. And don't discount that you're 19. I mean, the first time I had to get up and speak in front of a U.S. Senator, I was 26. And as comfortable as I was speaking in public, I almost wet my pants standing up there. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to go to jail for something. I'm sure I'm going to say something here. But So don't, don't even bother with the fact that you're 19. Act like you're 40 or act like you're 54 like I am. But so that, does that help? Okay. <laughs> so... Yeah. You and your buddy are going to start filming your own hunts. My first answer would be don't do it. Uh, so he, his question was, uh, if we film our own hunts, how can we do that without, what did you say, making fools of yourselves or something? Uh, don't worry about that. You're going to make a fool of yourself. The, the first time you start filming your hunts, you're probably going to mess up 70% of your encounters, maybe more, maybe 90% of your encounters. Uh, you're going to get frustrated. There's times you're going to say, oh, I'm going to bring the little handy cam and you're going to put it in your backpack and you're not even going to use it. Uh, so it takes some discipline to understand that I'm here to tell a story about a hunt rather than I'm here to hunt and maybe get 30 seconds of a kill shot. That's a, if you really want to engage people and you want to have fond memories, you want those memories to be of the entire experience of what you're doing. So camp shots, got the flat tire on the truck, got stuck. Corey's chasing an elk while Randy's chasing a grouse. Uh, that, those kind of things that add some color and some background and story to it. Um, when you start out from an equipment standpoint, don't go overboard. The little handy cam things are really, really good. Uh, Audio is always the hard part because there's so much more value to uh, a story when the audio is good, that you can hear the person's reaction or hear what they're saying. And that's probably one of the biggest challenges that people don't look at is the value of audio and how to capture good audio while doing it. But I, all I can say is just go and try it. Um, even if, if you had a really premium tag, I'd say don't try it on a hunt like that. 
go try it on hunts where oh, if I screw it up, I, that's an over-the-counter tag. I can do this every day for the next six weeks. And, and you'll see what works, what doesn't work. And you won't make a fool of yourself. Or if you feel like you did, just show it to your friends and family and then put it on a private file somewhere that no one's going to hold you accountable for it some year down the road. So uh, hopefully that's a little starting point. But my, my one point is don't let it interfere with the experience of what you're doing. Uh, those experiences are rare, especially when they're with family and friends. And they're fun to capture if you can do it. But there's also a balance between that interfering with the experience and actually capturing a story. So. Yeah, I was wondering, so this year in Utah, we've had a really wet year. Um, and we've got three days to go hunt with an archery bull elk tag uh, to work around school and be able to work in the rut. I'm wondering what would be the major aspects or land um, areas you would look for if we, you only had three days to hunt. Okay, so the question is, someone with a limited schedule that only has three days to hunt, what would you, what, what aspects would make you decide where to go and, and what days to pick with the context that it's been a really wet year across the West right now. Did I get that right? Um, can I ask a couple of questions? Is it a public land or private land? Public. Is it a limited entry or over the counter? Over the counter. Ooh, you picked the, <laughs> you picked the hardest of the hard, huh? Uh, are you going to be able to go three consecutive days or? Okay. What are the season dates? August 17th through September what? 13th? Well, I would go September 11th, 12th, and 13th if at all possible. Um, mostly just because you're going to have closer to the rut and have that rutting activity. And when you have a really moist year, like hey, I live in Montana, we're, we're having unbelievable moisture. You talk to people all the way to Arizona, New Mexico, same thing. When you have a really moist year and in that early season in August, you, normally you can count on water as a as a place that's going to con concentrate elk or the last of the green vegetation is going to be in smaller places so that you got higher concentrations in the areas where you do find them well now the landscape is moist and green so they're going to be dispersed heavily in that august period in a really wet year like this so if i was you i would whether it's my employer, my school, my significant other, I would be like, please, let me go the last three days of season. And some people will say, well, gee, you know, all the bulls will be shot by then or they'll all be educated. No, not usually by the second or third day they're educated. So it doesn't make much difference if you hunt the third day of season or the last three days of season in terms of where are the elk and as, as far as being reminded, oops, hunting season's here again. So I, hopefully that, that gives you some idea. Uh, I wouldn't expect you to be at work on September 11th, 12th, and 13th. School? Ah, school, don't worry about that. I mean, I mean uh, you, you tell your professors, or uh, are you in college? Oh, okay. Well, just tell them, look, I'm going to learn more in three days out in the woods than you can teach me in class. So uh, that's, that's been my approach to it. I mean, that's what I, I think. Corey's here to give some advice now. What'd I miss? 
Oh, we've we've told more lies about you. <laughs> no, truth. <laughs> I'm here to correct you. everything Randy said. Yeah. So uh, here's how it's working. That orange box out there, whoever's holding that orange box gets to answer the question or ask the question. <laughs> they get to answer it. Excellent. I've got some questions to ask. <laughs> uh, and uh, we got to repeat the question because we don't have that hooked up to anything. So Perfect. It, ask him questions no, now. No, ask you, him. You, I want to hear what he's saying. Yeah, no, you don't. So Bella, the public land dog, she wants to know uh, some strategies for cow elk hunting late season Arizona. Did you ask this same question in Boise? I, no, I asked you <laughs> a different question. You asked me about <laughs> Unit 10 in Arizona in Boise, didn't you? I told you? you Unit 10, and you went <laughs> on about Unit 10. You know how many guys have emailed me and threatened to come and put a whooping on me since I answered <laughs> your question? I'm going to let Corey answer it now, because I've already I got... I didn't ask you where to hunt, though. I know, but you, you... You just threw that out there. I did, because you looked like you were really going to give it a good effort. And I thought, well, I'll give him some GPS coordinates. But earlier, someone said, would I give GPS coordinates? And I said, yeah, I've got a sample written down here. They're in Australia. So... Just strategies. You know, do you call, for instance? Is that a, in late season, would you call, things like that? So first of all, I just I'm amazed that uh, that Q and A in Boise was like two months ago, and Randy's 55, and he can remember that far back. That's impressive. So and Bella wasn't there. <laughs> Randy is definitely the one to answer that question for me. For late season cow elk hunting, I wouldn't rely on calls. I would have a call with me, and if cows were walking by me and I needed to stop them, or if they're in a clearing getting ready to go in the timber, I might give a call to stop them, but I certainly wouldn't rely on calls to hunt them or to locate them or anything. Uh, that time of year, as, as Randy preaches, it's all about feed sources. So when you get into a late October, November hunt, you're looking for feed sources, and those cows are going to be grouped up. They're going to be in bigger herds, and uh, you're going to want to focus on, on those areas. And honestly, I, I haven't spent any time in Arizona late season, Randy has, but I can't imagine finding groups of cows is going to be too awfully difficult in that terrain and in that country. Uh, what I would add to that, whether it's Arizona or anywhere, if you think about a lot of elk herds are, they're not, they may not be Yellowstone type migratory where they go 50 miles, but they might be three or four miles migratory. And so you're gonna have your summer range and your winter range and everything in between is transition range. Well, depending on whether uh, the state of the forage condition before the snow came, your cows are gonna be closer to the winter range sooner than the bulls are. So if you're seeing bulls, the cows are probably gonna be lower than that. So they leave the summer range, in it, or yeah, the summer range. It's not like they just make a beeline right to the winter range. They're usually working their way down that transition range. So these late seasons in Arizona are usually start the Friday after Thanksgiving, if I remember right. Yeah, and, early December. Okay, yeah, and then the cow seasons are the week after that. That's right. So they're gonna be really close to that winter range. and. Like in Arizona, it's a lot of flat country. It's like, well, there's no distinction between winter range and summer range. There usually is. It's usually pretty small, but you'll find them in their winter range places by then. And again, that, that winter range is predicated on feed sources. And there's going to be different amounts of feed, different kinds of feed, and feed that's available at different times of the year. And it might only be a half mile away. It might be on a south face instead of a west face. I mean, there's just little tiny differences 
in that late season that make all the difference in finding the elk. And they're going to be where the prime food source is right then. Way more than security for cow elk. Um, where, what unit you got a tag for? 10. Oh, well, I already told you where to go in unit 10. <laughs> I guarantee you if you go there for five days, you'll kill a, you'll probably kill a cow on the first or second day. Did you so hear that? I'm gonna be, that I'm was gonna a be, guarantee. Guaranteed. That was a guarantee. I, I'm going to be down there coos deer hunting, and if I get done earlier, I should call you and see if I can come help you pack it out. I got, strong, I got strong camera guys. I could help you. <laughs> Who's next? Randy, this is probably going to be more for you. I uh, started elk hunting really seriously about five years ago, and my partner and I got the bright idea that after the first year, horses would make it easier. I think you're a llama guy. I wonder if you could tell me the virtues of llamas over horses, or Corey, should we just go back to backpack and, and, and drop them? I'll let Randy answer first, because I have a, an opinion there as well. All right, so I grew up in a logging family, okay? We use skitters, not horses. So every horse I've ever been on, and if you live in Montana, it's like a rite of passage, you gotta own a horse. I, I never have owned a horse, but all my friends have. And every one of their horses either are poorly trained or highly trained. I've not figured it out yet. I think they're poorly trained to just run through the, the, the lodge poles and knock me off the horse with all these limbs and stuff. Either that or they're highly trained and these guys said, hey, this is the guy I've been telling you about. Run him off the, the back of your saddle there. So I've not had great experiences with horses. But I do know that horses are a lot of maintenance. They require a lot more tack. Uh, just, there's a lot more to it. But, yeah, they can carry a, a lot of stuff. So for someone like me who drives the desk for a living, I'm an accountant. What do I know about horses? The really good part is llamas are almost accountant-proof. Even, in, you know, the old Geico commercial, so easy even a caveman can do it? Llamas are so easy even a CPA can do it. Uh, Low maintenance, they'll eat pretty much anything on the landscape. Uh, well behaved, you know, you always hear these stories about ornery llamas spitting at each other, or spitting at you. No, I, I've not encountered that. We've been using them for a couple of years now. They might spit at each other because like all animals, they have a hierarchy of who's the boss and who gets the best bedding spot, whatever. Uh, and they can carry a lot more than people think. Now, I'm not talking about alpacas. I'm not talking about the llama that your neighbor has as kind of a lawn ornament out there and fertilizing the grass. I'm talking about a true cara pack llama. A, a, a true llama that is built for packing can carry 90 to 100 pounds. That's a lot. And water? So, I don't know why I'm going to say this. Bo, Bo, the buddy I rent llamas from, he's going to kick me for saying this, but you'll be able to tell some of the places we hunt because we go where there's not water because we know the horse guys need water. And if we water up the llamas before we leave, we can hunt three to four days without having to water them, and the horse guys can't do that. So it's a way to eliminate the horse competition while you're doing backcountry hunting. So I guess, yeah, I'm, that, that's a pretty big vouch for llamas, right? Yeah, we'll find out this fall because Randy keeps stressing how awesome llamas are. So I'm going hunting with him, and he's saying we're going to have llamas there. So I'll, I'll give you a good feedback after that. For me, my experience has been with horses, and I grew up in a logging family also. We had horses, and I was the one who put hay up in the barn every winter for my sister's horse, and I hate horses. 
because they cause a lot of work. And every time, inevitably, every time we went out with horses, we had a rodeo. And it just ended up that it was easier for me just to get in the truck, drive somewhere and hike in. I could beat them loading the horses, unloading the horses, putting the packs on the horses and going. I could beat them in there and then packing out. It was kind of the same thing. We usually ended up having to unload the elk meat off of them because we got on something steep or one of them ran off or rolled down the hill. And I've just, I've gotten used to doing it myself. Now, with that being said, my back hurts still today. And it's been a long time since elk season and I didn't do nearly as much packing last year as I wanted to. There's a, there's a benefit there. So I think the best of both worlds is knowing somebody else who owns horses and hunting with them. Let them take care of them, feed them all year. Let them deal with the rodeo. You go hunt and just put your meat on, on the back of their horses. So that's my, my opinion. That, that sounds like a really good answer. Uh, who's next? Who's got the orange box? My name is Jill. I'm Ed's wife who just asked that last question. First, thanks, because now I know Classifieds is going to be looking for llamas <laughs> in our home. Um, but my question is, I... I feel like the dopamine receptors that cause addiction for men every time something good happens, like they killed the elk last year, increases their want to be gone even more. And so my question for you two is, how long does it take your wives to let you back in bed after your hunt? <laughs> is my wife here? I know Randy's isn't, so he, he can probably get away with answering this one. Jill wants to know... As since her husband asked the last question, how do you have a in a relationship of whatever level of intimacy <laughs> <laughs> if you uh, decide that every year you shoot an elk, you want to be gone even more? Have I have I said that right, Jill? So I think Appreciate I can it. paraphrase it a little better. <clears throat> I think okay. what she was saying was every year he's gone and she lets him go he wants to go more the next year. Mm -hmm. And so how long after, you know, as he extends these seasons out, how long after he gets back, is it probably okay to uh, let him sleep back in the house or in the bedroom instead of the dog house? Yeah. Okay, she just gave you the thumbs up, Corey. <laughs> Obviously, you said it better. Than well, I, I didn't say it better. I probably just experienced it better. So who's going to answer that question? I'll answer it. Uh, the fact that you're sitting here with him, Jill, tells me you're a pretty awesome wife. So don't take advantage of that. I, I'm talking not to you, Jill, You're to your husband. To Ed. Yeah, Ed, don't take advantage of that. When your wife says enough is enough, you be on your way home five minutes before she says that. And uh, things will work out. Yeah. How long have you been married, Corey? <sighs> he doesn't even know. He probably doesn't know his wife's birthday. I know her social security number. Well, yeah, that's because you can apply for tags for everybody. They need a social security number, not because you... <laughs> I've been blissfully married for 18 years. Okay, I, I just passed my 30th wedding anniversary. And, uh, yeah, it, that's, a, that's a hard one. It, it really is. We, I have another podcast where we did two complete episodes on merited, marital advice. I'm, well, I, well, here's how I look at it. You know, if you've been married 30 years and you drive around the West all fall with these 25 to 35-year-old camera guys who are like, yeah, when I get married, man, this is how it's going to be. <laughs> I just about run in the ditch laughing when they pull that one out. I'm like, yeah, come and talk to me about oh, three years after you've been married. So... It's uh, a lot like kids. You know, everybody before you have children always says, well, when I have kids, 
they're going to be well behaved and I'm not going to let them do this. And I always chuckle. Yeah. I've yeah. been there and I yeah. was humbled. Uh, but in a serious answer to that question, I'd agree with a lot of what Corey said. In my house, we have tax season, because I'm a CPA. So we have tax season and hunting season that I kind of occupy. And somewhere the planets aligned, and I married a woman who's a fanatic angler. So we have tax season, fishing season, and hunting season. So she gets the calendar the rest of the year. I, every once in a while, she wants to go to a movie or something. And I, I can't even imagine paying $40 to go to a movie and eat crappy popcorn and have some little kid on the back of the seat putting his foot in my back. But you know what? I go there and I smile and tell her what a great movie that was and da-da-da. And so... I don't know if that smooths things out. Uh, she does get accustomed to me being gone. Uh, like when I come back in December, she's been running the joint for the last three or four months, right? What do I do? This is how stupid I am. Guys are stupid, just as a general rule. The guys are dumb and the women are smart, okay? So any of you think about to get married, don't argue with the wife. Because odds are you're going to be wrong two out of three, three out of four times. So don't argue anyhow. That's on the low side. Yeah. That's giving guys the benefit of the doubt. So you come home and what do I do? I open the refrigerator. I'm like, since when have we put the milk on the second <laughs> shelf? And she looks at me like, hey, pal, I've been keeping this joint afloat for the last few months. You know, just shut up. She doesn't say it, but any of us who've been married very long, you know that the nonverbal communication is way more effective and way more meaningful than the verbal communication. So I take the hand, put my tail between my legs. Honey, can I run to town and get you a coffee and a donut and da-da-da? And so, yeah, it's, I, I'm just lucky, as Ed is also. And similar to Randy, I've watched all four seasons of Dark. I've watched Denton Abbey. There's just things you have to do that you wouldn't normally do. So that, yeah, I mean, you have to realize, especially for us, we have three children at home still. My wife is a taxi driver. She's a, a referee in between an MMA match at least three times a day. There's a lot going on for a single parent for a month in September. So I've got to make the other 11 months as good as I can because, you know, I just... My wife, I, when I'm leaving, I feel guilty. And I want her just to be all sweet and cuddly with me and say, it's okay, you go and have fun. And she's not. She's like complete opposite. It's like anything I say, I get snapped back at. She's grumpy. She gives me the cold shoulder. And I'm like, why are you doing this? Like, That's how I have to prepare for you being gone for a month. I have to toughen myself up because I'm a single parent. So I, I've realized that. I let her have her space during that. I build garden fences in the month of August when it's 103 degrees out. I do all these things because I know how blessed I am and how grateful I am to be able to go for three or four weeks in the fall and, and chase elk. Just saying from personal experience, Ed, if you've been out hunting for three weeks and it snowed three feet since the last time you called home, don't call and say, man, it was almost too hot to hunt today after she's just spent the last 24 hours behind a snowblower. That's just from personal experience. So. <laughs> Who's got the box? Hey, guys. My name is Matt. I live in Colorado, and uh, this is probably a good follow-up question to the llamas. I did just get a couple maybe a month ago, and they won't be ready this season. But how would you change your hunting tactics if you had physical limitations? Uh, 
you know, we always hear those magical numbers. You've got to hike five, seven, ten miles in to get to the prime zones. I'm limited to maybe two or three miles in. That's about all I can do. So, so what would you do to focus on those areas that may have more traffic than you would ideally like to hunt in? I, you know, I've, I had an experience several years ago. We were busting our tails in the backcountry. We were going all day, 15, 16 miles elevation. It was just brutal. And after day four or five, we hadn't got into any elk. We hadn't got into any bugling action. And of course, all the, the typical excuses, oh, there's probably wolves in here, or it's too early, you know, it's full moon, all the different things. And we regrouped, we went into town, we uh, took a shower, went to the gas station, and we're filling up the truck with gas. And this drunk guy comes walking up the sidewalk in town. And he walks by the truck and looks at us in our camouflage, and he says, you boys hunting elk? I said, yeah, that's right. And he's like, how's it going? He said, oh, we're, you know, we're hiking a lot. And he kind of smiled and got a smirk. And he said, if you can't hear the highway, you've gone too far. And we laughed like, yeah, we're 16 miles a day. We're going back in as far as we can. We still can't find the elk. And we laughed about that for the next day and a half. Just every time we couldn't find the elk, like, if you can't hear the highway, you've gone too far. Just mocking this guy. We're driving back to camp about a half hour before dark one night. And there's a six-point bull standing off of the side of the highway. And of course, we looked at each other, grabbed our bows, and ran up there. And there were four bulls bugling from the truck right there at the highway. We shot both of our bulls that season within 400 yards of the highway. Solid traffic on the highway going by to their elk camp 20 miles back in to unload their horses. So there are hidden pockets. You've got to find them. They aren't going to be the obvious one at a pullout and a trailhead off the highway. You aren't going to get an elk to bugle there. But... If you drive by something and there's a north-facing knob up there and you just think, there's got to be an elk that lives there, there might be an elk that lives there. And it's only going to take you 15 minutes to hike up there and check it out. So don't get into the mindset that you have to go seven miles back in to get away from people. There are areas right next to the highway that, that hold elk sometimes. And I would add to that, there's also a seasonal pattern to that. So I break the elk calendar down into five periods, early season of August, pre-rut, peak rut, post-rut, late season. The first three seasons are more of a feed pattern, even the peak rut. So the cows are always on the best feed. So if the cows are on the best feed, that's where the bulls are going to be. And if that best feed is a half mile from the road, that's where the bulls are going to be. Now you get into these later seasons uh, after the rifle season start of post rut and late season. Yeah, then they're, you're, you're talking about a little bit more of a get back there kind of thing. I call them sanctuaries. And a sanctuary doesn't have to be distance. It can be topography. And you're from Colorado. Where at? He said Denver. Just Denver. Moved to Denver. Oh, okay. So uh, where I shot, not the last Colorado bull, the one before that, we're only about three-quarter of a mile from a really, really busy forest service road. But for the first 20 minutes of hiking, it is just ugly, nasty. Nobody wants to go there. You get up there, there's this big bench, and it's... It's just where the elk congregate from the easier places that have ATV trails and other stuff. So in November, your third rifle over-the-counter rifle season, I know I can hike in there. Yeah, it's going to take me 45, 50 minutes. But that first 500 feet of vertical just causes everyone to disregard it. I'll hear car doors slamming kind of like this guy. If you can't hear the highway, you're, you've gone too far. Well, 
we can hear the highway, we can hear people talking, and we're shooting bull out there. And a sanctuary doesn't have to be huge distances. It could be blow down or a mess, or it could be just topography up or down where people say, I don't want to carry an elk out of there. So it's, uh, I know a lot of people hike past elk just to say, oh yeah, I was way back in there. I was in there further than anyone. So <laughs> this, this is elk hunting. This isn't necessarily a, a triathlon. So, I, but did we repeat his question before we started answering? I think the question, yeah, if we didn't, it was just, you know, if you have physical limitations, how far in do you need to go to, to get away from right. people and to find elk? And uh, yeah, just to recap that, it's, there's, there are a lot of features. If I drive by something and there's a really nice north face looking knob back in there and there's this nasty rock face to get up to it or if you have google earth and onyx maps and look at something it's like this is nasty right here but look at that basin right behind it 99 percent of people aren't going to climb up that nasty face they're going to drive right by it and if you climb up there you might be rewarded with a, a phenomenal basin that nobody else hunts within a half mile of a road so my question is a similar topic to jill's um <laughs> but just to preface so we're getting married in a month Oh, ho, ho, hold on, time out, time out, time out. What date? August 24th. Oh, you're okay, you're okay. Um, so we're getting married in a month. He loves you guys. I, I found out you both of your names probably about the same time I found out his middle name. <laughs> um, and I'm from Montana as well, so I am familiar with hunting, but I don't come from a hunting family. So I've listened to your podcasts about, <laughs> yeah, I've listened to both of them, but I guess my question is, how can, when you're starting out, when you're newly married, I'm not very familiar with the whole hunting thing. I want to share it with them, but I don't know if it'll be my thing or not. So how can I be supportive without feeling like it's the only thing that matters? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm probably a little bit we should, we should have Jill answer this question here or any other uh, women who've been through oh back here we, we've got wait, did, I, I couldn't hear the answer did you yeah so the question is uh, what, what are your names Robbie and Caitlin okay so Robbie and Caitlin are getting married in a month so it's July now that means August good job Robbie you Set yeah. the date yeah, appropriately. You, you, you cleared you, the first yeah, hurdle. Yes. You know, that's good. And, and you have a, a fiance who supports that. So excellent. You guys are off on a good start there. Uh, when it comes to, so Caitlin didn't grow up in a hunting family and uh, wants to know how she can be supportive, how she can be involved and see if she likes it. And then if maybe you don't like it, and it's not your thing. How can you still support him? Is that pretty right? Okay. Can I take a stab? You, please, you, you do that. I'll <laughs> screw it up. I'll have us in a lawsuit or something. Now, just maybe six months before this situation in my life, I would have probably said, well, she doesn't like hunting. I'm not going to marry her. You know, it's, it's hunting or nothing. She has to be on board. And uh, I think, fortunately, I, I matured a little bit before that happened, and I got engaged to a really great wife. Uh, but she comes from a family that didn't do a lot of hunting. They bird hunted a little bit, and they fished a lot. And so for her, she wasn't really prepared for what September was all about. Even though I told her, you know, I shed hunted and we, we hunted with hounds and all the things that, you know, she was just happy to be engaged and, and uh, blissfully engaged. Well, reality hits when you get married and that's, it changes a little bit. The dynamics change. And for her, uh, you know, she loved being at hunting camp, but she didn't get the thrill of hunting and wanting to be out there with us necessarily. And then when we had children, that changed everything again. And she couldn't be out there even if she wanted to. With that being said, I had to be 
very, very respectful of the fact that she's newlywed. I'm newlywed, but I still want to go elk hunting. She's newlywed and she's all alone and doesn't have a hobby right then and there during September to do. So there was some, I had to make sure she was reassured continually. She's my number one priority always. And hunting is a close second, but it's still a second. And at the end of September, she's probably thinking, okay, hunting is number one. Now I have to go and, and make sure she knows again for the next 11 months, she's number one. But I think uh, just understand that's him. That's what makes him who he is. And he has to have hunting. He can't, it can't be taken away from him or you're changing who he is. But on the flip side, you're now in a relationship where it's, there has to be some compromise. So is that helpful a little bit? It's, you'll figure it out. Wait, wait, we've got hands raised by women. Everywhere, yeah. Women <laughs> in the audience are like, wait, let me weigh in on that one. Briber, yes, briber. What, what My, bribe? Bribe? Bribe works good. My wife always has a preseason chore list, and it grows. We're in our 18th year. Her list is like 18 pages longer than it was our first year. So it goes, sorry, Robbie, it's just... It's a big list, but I get those done. I bust all my chores out in August, and then I can feel good about going. And she, I can always say, hey, remember that big list of chores I did? And she's like, you're right. Go ahead and go. So, Just remember you're sharing your lives together, and that requires, I think, as younger people, where we all don't, we don't intentionally, we aren't intentionally selfish, but we just haven't matured through some of the times where we got to be less selfish. And I was, why my wife put up with me when we first got married, I have no idea. But I, as I reflect, the times where I did really stupid things that cost me my ability to hunt with more liberty, it was because I was being selfish. I was being selfish with my time, I was being selfish with my attention or our household budget. And so now I will tell you that if you need a new bow next year that costs $1,200, it's really a $3,000 bow. <laughs> $1,200 for you, $1,200 for her, and $600 for the household budget. Get used to it. <laughs> Right, Jill? See? So can I, can I ask a really quick question? How old are the two of you? 23 and what? 22. 22? So you, that's perfect. Because I was 25, my wife was 26. We were so set in our independent ways, it took a little bit of adjustment. You're still fresh enough out of home that you'll, you'll meld together really well there. Okay, so I, my dad and I, we hunt in tree stands, and I go stark crazy sometimes just because you're stuck up there and you can't move around. But I've only heard him call once. Most of the time we just sit there and wait for the animals to come in. So I guess my question is how, how effective is calling? And should you be calling or is it better to just sit there and watch? So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm the same as you. So the question is, uh, what was your name? McKaylee hunts with her dad and they primarily hunt tree stands and McKaylee is very stir crazy. Don't have patience to sit in a tree stand, right? I, it gets very boring. I'm, I can completely relate to that. So uh, you haven't heard your dad use a lot of calls from the tree stand. Are calls effective? Should you be using them? Uh, so a tree stand, the benefit of a tree stand is 
you establish, for whatever reason, there are elk coming into this area, whether it's a, an area where you can bait them, whether it's a game trail and they, they come by there every day on their way to water, there's a reason you're putting a tree stand there. And it's typically, there's some travel involved for the elk to get there. So to sit and blindly call in a tree stand might not be effective because the elk might be three drainages away. They might be on the backside and not be able to hear you. I think for me, I would probably throw out a, a location bugle or some cow calls every once in a while. But the other benefit of hunting in a tree stand is you have the element of surprise. They have no idea you're there. They're coming by. They're always wary, but they aren't on edge thinking I should be seeing something right now. The second you call, in their mind, there's another elk there. And when they get into that area, they're looking for that elk. And if they don't see it, they're going to be more on edge. So you just have to really be careful. I certainly wouldn't try calling in an elk from a tree stand, but I'm with you. It gets so boring that I just want to at least hear something and know there's something around because I'm sitting in a dark box right here and I have no idea what's around me. And I might sit here for a week and not see anything. So I would use them sporadically. I wouldn't use them to try to call it in, uh, but to get an answer and at least give me hope that there's something coming my way, I'd, I'd probably use them a little bit. Can I ask a follow-up question on that? Yeah. So we've been married for a year and I still can't hunt with her because I can't sit in a tree stand. Um, but where we're hunting... Hold so, on. Did you say you've been married to her? For a year, yeah. For a year and you still year. can't hunt with her because I, her dad doesn't trust you or... No, no, no. Oh, okay. So last year her dad took me up with him. I okay. had already shot one. And uh, he had me sit in a tree stand for six and a half hours without being able to move, and I said I'd never go in there again. Um, but with our question, how effective, so we hunt in Utah, and where we live by is a spike-only unit. Um, so have you ever found calling to be effective for spikes? Yeah, absolutely. So the question is, what was your name? Jaden uh, has been married for a year and can't sit in a tree stand. And so he's just wondering if calling is effective. They live in Utah, hunt in a spike only area, and just wondering if calling can be effective for spikes. And I would say absolutely. Uh, spikes, I think, would probably, uh, I won't say the most, they're probably the easiest animal to call in because spikes are dumb still. They're, and they're a herd animal. A lot of times they've been kicked out of the herd by another bull. They're no longer with their moms. They're, you know, a year and a half old typically. So they're just very vulnerable to calling. And whether it's a cow call or another bugle, typically a spike will come in. The problem is, is spikes typically don't bugle back. They'll be, they'll be vocal sometimes. And I've had spikes come in that I swore was a big six point, you know, their eyes rolled back in their head, foaming at the mouth. And it's like, did that just come from that fuzzy horned little spike? And sure enough, it was. Most of the time though, they're going to come running to you quietly. And so if you get in an area where you're into a lot of elk and you know, there's a herd there, there's a good chance there's going to be a spike and just sitting there and cold calling, doing some cow calling and a, you know, just a soft little bugle, not getting too aggressive can be really effective to get a spike running to you. If you see a spike, I would just give them a couple sweet cow calls and just a lot of times you can turn them and get them to come in. They're curious, they're, they want to be with the herd. So yeah, absolutely. All right. I kind of, are you done, Randy? No, I got, Corey called the spike in for me in New Mexico and he wouldn't let me shoot it because we were seven miles from the truck. I almost shot it just out of spite, but it did exactly <laughs> what he said. It came running in. I thought the thing was mad at me or something, but uh, I just listened to what he has to say when it comes to calling in elk. <laughs> I just do what he tells me sometimes. All right, so uh, I hunt in Utah, obviously, and their archery season runs a little bit earlier than most states. It's like August 17th to September 13th. Um, and those first couple weeks of the hunt, it seems like till Labor Day, they're in that pre-rut stage. 
I'm just wondering what you would do if you were hunting in that pre-rut stage. Are you going to be sitting in water? Are you going to be throwing out bugles? Um, just kind of the tactics behind that. I know what i do because I'm lazy and I don't like the heat. I might be a tree stand hunter or I might be a, a ground blind hunter, but I'd probably be a spot and stock hunter. Just because they're still in a feed pattern through the early part of that. I, where's the south cache from here? Like over that direction somewhere? Yeah, I'm pointing the right, he says I'm pointing the right direction. I had that tag and yeah, you're, I think that year your archery season opened August 20th. And it's tough when the archery seasons are open that early. And I ended up sitting a lot more water than I, I I'm with her. I, I, I can't sit in a tree stand. I'd rather get drugged behind a vehicle for a half mile or something than to sit in a tree stand. But I ended up doing a lot of sitting over water during that early hunt because I knew it's pre-rut. So they're not going to be as active as they are. And if I wanted to have encounters, I needed to focus on two other primary factors of food and water. And so if, if you can glass them, you could spot and stock them. But it's a tough time. It's a really tough time to kill an elk with a bow. Yeah, and, and just to add to that, I'll, I'll steal from Ryan Carter's playbook because Ryan is the pro at early season focusing on big bulls. So I think it really comes down to what your goal is. Do you want the experience of calling elk? You're going to have to wait until September and probably, you know, September 5th through the 13th, the elk will be vocal a little bit. You'll be able to call in some bulls during that time frame. In August, not so much. You might get lucky and hear one bugle and one might come in, but I certainly wouldn't focus on calling as my tactic then. Uh, if, if you want to experience that, you need to wait. If you simply want to kill an elk and that's your primary goal and you'll you want to do what's most effective i think during that time sitting water you know they, they have to have water if you find a good water hole or a wallow that can be really effective again we don't have patience michaela doesn't have patience it's hard to sit over water but when it comes to a effective strategy for hunting elk that's probably the best strategy then ryan's playbook is find the bulls and go after them. So, you know, if you can glass and can spot and stalk, like Randy said, that can be incredibly fun. That's like mule deer hunting, which I mean, mule deer, they're nowhere, they're not like elk, but they're, you know, if you have nothing else to do, mule deer are fun to hunt and spot and stalking mule deer can be a lot of fun. And if you have an area where you can see where you can glass elk at first light, they go in bed down, you can spot and stalk them. Or if you know where they're traveling and can get in there, you don't have to sit for 12 hours waiting for them. But if you want to focus on a big bull, I would probably target that first two weeks of the season up till the first of September, because then they move. Then they go looking for cows, they get in those staging areas, and they might roam 10 or 20 miles getting to the rut area. And then all of your summer scouting might be out the window because those bulls are no longer there. So it really depends on what your goal is and how you want to focus your hunt. But I think there's definitely multiple strategies that can be effective. How do I, how do I explain hunting to my friends? <laughs> Ooh. That might be the deepest the, question the, we've ever gotten. Yeah, the most difficult question comes from probably the youngest person in the yeah. audience. How old are you? Seven. Seven. How do I explain hunting to my friends? Wow, that's really... <laughs> Especially seven-year-old friends. Yeah. That's... Um, boy, that's... I, I guess... It depends on who your friends are, why they're asking, and and uh, what what uh, 
led them to that question. Uh, for me, it's pretty easy because I like to acquire my own food with by myself, and I hunt to, at its most basic premise, I hunt for food. And some people may not want to hunt for food. They might want to go buy their food at the grocery store, and that's fine. Uh, I buy food, some food at the grocery store, but for... People, even if they're older people, usually it comes down for me as talking about the fact that I like the responsibility that comes with hunting what I'm going to eat. And I think another, and I agree 100% with that, another, uh, I'll just give an example. We were in the, in, the lobby, or in the hotel yesterday and we were going up the elevator, Randy and I together, and we had our podcast kits, which... They're back here. They're, they're just plastic cases, had a handle on them. And I think Randy must have like a sticker on his with some antlers or something. And there was a, a hotel worker that was from another country in the hotel or in the, in the elevator with us. And she said, do you kill animals with those? And I didn't understand really what she was saying at first. And Randy got off on a, on a floor right after that. And I was stuck there having to answer the question. And she, she repeated it again. She said, do you kill animals with those? And I, it could have went a lot of different ways. And I just said, no, no, we don't kill animals with those. These, these are podcasts. We do podcasts. They're headsets and everything. And she said, oh, okay. I thought, I thought I saw that maybe you killed animals. So she, I think she was thinking, are those guns in there? Are those weapons? And, you know, people come from so many different backgrounds that it can be difficult to explain to them why we hunt and what hunting is for us. But I think in addition to the food, the fact that hunting is conservation and Everybody, I think, wants to make sure there are animals on earth forever. And I feel without hunting, with our, with our encroachment as humans, with our, where we live and taking away habitat from animals, we're here. We want to be here. Humans are here. Nobody wants to get rid of all the humans. There are some people who want to get rid of hunters for sure, but nobody wants to get rid of all humans. We encroach on nature and nature can't manage itself anymore because of that. And as hunters, we pour more passion, more dollars and more time and energy into making sure that we are conserving animals and preserving animals. We want them here more than anyone else. And we do more to preserve that and put our, our money and our energy where our mouth is. And so I think explaining to them that hunting is a way to manage animals so that we make sure they're here forever. No hunter wants to wipe out any animal species. No hunter wants to go and hunt animals till they're all gone. We're very strictly regulated on the managing side to make sure that there are gonna be animals here for our seven-year-old children and for their children and for generations to come. We believe that more than anybody as hunters. So is anyone over on this side have a question? It's like, oh, all right. We, we, we need to start moving the box around a little bit here. Hi, my name's Sean. I was uh, just kind of wondering, I'm here with my daughter today, wanting to get her into hunting in a few years. Kind of just curious, like, what you guys did or how you guys did that to, to introduce your kids to hunting. Sean, how old's your daughter? She's uh, three months tomorrow. <laughs> wow. I love it. The question is, Sean is here with his daughter, and he wants to know... You know, he wants to get her into hunting in the next couple of years. What, what can he do to ensure that she wants to go hunting with him? So we asked the question, how old his daughter was. I had an idea of the answer because he's holding her and she's three months. <laughs> uh, 
You want me to take yeah, that? Yeah, I only ahead. had one kid, so according to most people, I'm not even a parent. So I'm not a, <laughs> you know, if you only have one kid, you blame the right kid, right? They're not arguing with each other. So uh, take my advice for what it's worth of only having one kid. Uh, it was just about making things fun. Uh, my son loved to camp. He loved fires. He, you know, cooking marshmallows. He, it, just being out there with the experience of being in the natural world was so intriguing to him. We'd go on an antelope hunt and we'd go look for fossils. He, I, I don't know what a trilobite was, but at age seven, he knew what a trilobite was and he was finding them. Uh, we'd do little contest things. So we had a little, uh, like a game cart and how we didn't get hurt. We, we deserved to have broken limbs because of this, but we would push each other down the hill in this game cart and you'd get to a certain point and you'd let go. Well, it'd get front heavy and bury into the sagebrush and the other person and go tumbling. And we just thought that was all. I mean, obviously we left our gear and our firearms up the hill, but whatever it was that he thought was fun, that's what we did. I, uh, I, I just viewed this kind of like it sounds like you are is I'm making an investment now to make sure that he understands the natural world, that he's excited about the things. That, and whether he decided to hunt or not hunt, I'm glad he does. But it was mostly about him understanding where a lot of our food came from, how we as humans interact in this natural world. And by making it fun and making it about him and not about me, it seemed to have worked out. Yeah, there, there's no doubt life changes when you have children and everything about life. You know, you're, you're no longer the most important person in your life. And that's, that's a transition that took me a little bit. I, uh, I, I was 25 when we got married. Uh, I think our, our first son was born uh, two years after we were married. So I was, whatever the math is, Randy's account, but it's 27 or somewhere. So I had had 27 years to grow into a very selfish personality. And it was, it was about me, especially hunting. Hunting was about me. I, I went hunting because I loved hunting. And I used the word I a lot when I talked about hunting. And now all of a sudden I have this little crying baby boy who I can't take out elk hunting. He's going to scare all the elk away. I can't do all these things. So maybe I'll wait until he's old enough to be able to go. And, and that would be the wrong thing to do. Unfortunately, I didn't. I had him in a backpack shed hunting. Like Randy said, finding ways to get him out there and make it about them. You're not there to fill your tag anymore. You're there to share that experience with them. And you're, you're there to share why you love it with them. And whether that's looking for fossils or hearing an elk bugle or seeing a mule deer, make it about them. And I had my son with me. He was two and a half. I shot an antelope. It was about him, though, because he was sitting in the blind with me with his coloring book and his Power Ranger action figures. It was about him, and we just got really lucky. And we have three children. My oldest, Isaac, is, I mean, he's a hunting fanatic. That's all he thinks about and all he wants to do because that was my focus when he was born. And we sat and watched every Primos the Truth about elk hunting video you can, we could get our hands on. He sat and watched it with me. And then, you know, my daughter was born after that and a little bit less focus on hunting. We were getting busier and busier. Isaac's now in, you know, doing other activities in preschool or whatever. And then our third uh, son, Sam, was born and he's probably the least interested in hunting and he's 12 now. But with that being said, he's coming around to it. Nothing is ever forced on them. They get to choose what they want to do and what their passions are and interests are. But now as I've spent time with him, 
he wants to spend more time with me and recognizes hunting would be a great way to do that. And so I think don't ever push them to do it, introduce them to it, explain to them why you love it, make them a part of it, but make it about them always. Who's got the box? I got the, I got the box. My name's Brett, and I have a question about regarding bugling. Um, there are times where I've stood in one place and bugled and waited. And the question is, like, how long do you wait for something that might come in silent, or is it more effective to just keep walking and bugling and try to listen for something to respond? So to me, it's, it's two different approaches, and I don't know if you've had more success doing it one way, staying in a spot for a while versus just walking. Excellent. So the question is, uh, how long do you stay in one spot when you're bugling? So if you bugle and nothing comes in, do you sit there and keep calling blindly kind of waiting for something to come in, or you just completely move on to the next area and start calling there. And I, I really wish you wouldn't have used two words in your question, but it was, what's more effective? And that, that's really tough to answer because I have no patience. I can't stand still. If something doesn't answer me and I don't know there's something there, I'm on to the next place. And, and Randy mentioned something earlier about a lot of people walk by elk. I walk by a lot of elk because I'm looking for one specific animal that will bugle. And if I can't find him, I'll walk all day. There might have been 20 elk there that would have came to my calls quietly, but I don't know. With that being said, when we talk about effectiveness, if you are in an area where there are elk and you know there's fresh tracks, you're in a bedding area, there's droppings that are from that morning. If you set up and start calling and don't get an answer, there's still a really good chance something's going to come sneaking in. And so I would say, depending on, again, your goal, if you want to call in an elk, you've got to find an elk that's calling. Uh, to, to, be, to be certain, you're going to call in an elk. But if you want to fill a tag, if you're in an area where there's elk, I would probably say it's going to be more effective. You know there's elk there. Sit down and, and call. And don't get aggressive. You know, throw out some cow calls, a lone bugle here and there, and listen. And recognize they're probably going to circle downwind of you if they're coming in quiet. They're coming in a little wary and on, on a, their senses are on full alert. Recognize where they're going to come in listen for the slightest little branch break and be on full alert. Because there's been several times we've sat there eating lunch or calling, nothing answers, and we'll stand there and all of a sudden we'll turn around, there'll be an elk standing there looking at us. And so I think effective-wise, if they're in the area, call quietly. Uh, if you want to call them in, hike all day until you find the one bull that'll bugle and don't stay in one area too long. Would you add anything to that, Randy? I have nothing to add to that. And before we, before we get to the question... I'm up here on stage sweating, and I'm yeah. in the shade. For those of you sitting out in the sun, thanks for yeah. I know it's miserable sitting there right now, so Gotta thank be. you for doing that. Yeah. Awesome. Hey, Corey, congratulations on the uh, championship today. That was it was awesome competition. Thank My you. question's geared that way because it was really intriguing to me to watch the dynamic of two guys elk calling kind of combatively like elk do to some extent. And so my question is, do you want to be first in the calling order? Do you want to be second in the calling order? Do you like to hear what the other guy does first? Kind of tell me a little bit about the dynamic of calling out on stage like that in front of a crowd and stuff. For sure. So the question has to do with, with competition calling and uh, just how, how the approach, do you want to be first or do you want to be second? And they changed the format two years ago, so it's head-to-head. And I love that. I, because before you'd have, say, 30 people in the professional division. If you drew number one, you had to go first, and you, we called it the bullet. You bit the bullet. There's, you aren't going on from there because no judge is going to give you a high score as the first caller. And then 30 minutes or 40 minutes or an hour and a half later when they get to caller 30, 
they don't remember anything about caller one. So you aren't getting a fair comparison through that uh, format. Going head to head, the judges hear you, they hear the other person, and they give a score of who they think is best. So I love that format. With that being said, there are a lot of stresses that are added to it because every time you go on stage, if you don't win, you're going home. And for instance, yesterday in the second round, I went against somebody who five years ago, I said, you will win a world championship one day because you are a phenomenal caller. And now I'm facing him in the second round, my first time on stage, and it was so nerve wracking. There were so many nerves involved because I'm going home in the second round if I don't beat him, and he's an incredible caller. And so the seating you know, is, is difficult. Trying to you know, place yourself in the seating, there's strategy in that, which bracket you get in. I was in a bracket with phenomenal callers, and there's other brackets that you look at and be like, oh, I wish I was in that one because my calling style would match up really well against them, according to the judges. And then there's the, the do you want to be caller one or caller two? And for me, I think I, I've settled in on, I think caller two is better. I don't know that for sure, but I think just, I don't know if it's through experience and seeing caller two come out on top more times than not. I, I, I'm more comfortable as caller two because I do get, the other person goes first, then I get to say, what did they do? And maybe tweak things a little if I need to. With that being said, I try not to even worry about what they're doing. I block them out completely. I look at my list, my focus of what I'm gonna do, and I really try to block them out and then go and do you know, what I'm doing. And in a human judged contest like that, it's completely subjective to human judges. And you might think you're the best, a hundred people might come up to you and tell you you're the best, and the judges might give it to the other person 7-0. And that's just something you have to be okay with going into a contest like that. Uh, if I'm caller one, I always say, it's my job to raise the bar. And if I'm caller two, it's my job to shut the door. And so that's how I look at it when I go into it, I've got to really make sure that I'm setting the bar high as caller one. If I'm caller two, I've got to outdo the other guy. But I get more nervous, not, again, not based on who I'm calling against, not based on anything other than I've got to perform at my best. And when I perform at my best, I know the other person's trying to perform at their best. And at that point, it's in the judge's hands. And it can go either way. And today in the finals, absolutely, I, I would say in, I don't know how long I've been doing this, 30 years maybe, of competition calling, the finals today, I think, in my mind, was the closest that I have ever seen and the more, most nervous I've ever been. But at the same time, had I lost today to Bo Brooks, I would have been completely ecstatic for him because he's a phenomenal, and there's a lot of phenomenal callers, but to get head to head like that, and to be able to get the two callers that the judges felt were the best and to go head to head, it was, it was incredible. Who's got the box? We got one more question. Because they're, right back here. Chad just said he's gonna kick us out of here for someone who knows what they're talking about, so. <laughs> so as has been mentioned, Utah's archery elk season is early. But the rifle, early rifle hunt happens during the, the prime rut. I will probably draw that tag next year. What tactics, if any, do you employ calling during the rut using a rifle? And how does that differ than using archery equipment? Obviously, shot distance is the, a key there. You want to repeat the question? Right? So the question is, in Utah, uh, late September is when a lot of the rifle seasons happen in the limited entry units, which is peak rut, uh, which is one of the few states in the country. You get a few of those in Arizona, very, very few. 
Other than that, Utah, that's where you're going to be hunting them with a rifle in the rut for the most part. So the question was, in that scenario, do you do anything differently because you're rifle hunting as far as how you call and when you call what you do compared to if you were archery hunting? Did I get that right? All right, and Corey's going to answer that question. (laughs) I, I wouldn't do anything different. The benefit of having a rifle during the peak rut is you don't have to stay there and be set up and call in bull after bull. You can get eyes on them and you can tell, you know, I, you draw a tag like that, it's probably taking 15 plus years, I'm guessing, as a resident to draw that tag. You're going to be picky. You want a trophy animal and whatever that is in your eyes, that, you know, that's for you to decide. But you are probably not going to go out there and shoot the first spike or the first four point that comes into your calls in that hunt. So with that being said, you're going to be able to get eyes on the elk and be able to immediately get up and go to the next one. And if I had that tag... I would be a bulldozer going through the woods, getting answers, because every elk out there, especially mature bulls, are going to be answering it. I'm just going to go crashing in, call them in, or at least get eyes on them on a hillside and say, that's not the bull I want. I'm going on to the next one. And it, I mean, I, I literally would be a wrecking ball going through the elk woods if I had a rifle during the rut. And I would add something to that. Uh, one year, I had a Nevada elk tag, so I back to the marriage advice thing. <laughs> I knew if I drew another elk tag... I was probably going to be divorced. So I called my friend in Arizona. This is before you could buy a point. Uh, I tell my buddy Jerry, hey, I got a Nevada elk tag. I can't afford to draw another tag. Oh, don't worry. Apply for the early rifle hunt in Unit 10. You'll never draw. Guess what? I drew. So I got to experience one of those early rifle rut hunts that you have. And they're remarkable hunts. But it's probably the hunt I've felt more pressure than any hunt I've ever been on in my life. All of a sudden, people are like, oh, you're never going to draw that again. If you don't shoot a bull over, everyone had their number, right? Oh, you're, you're wasting the tag. You're this, you're that. Uh, my, what I would add to that is just make sure you have a fun hunt and you do it for what you want out of the hunt because you're going to get all kinds of advice from other people of what your hunt should be, and it's really your hunt. Do it how you want. Don't put a lot of pressure on yourself. Go and have fun, and the odds are you're still going to have a great hunt with a really great bull when it's all said and done. Are we done? We got, we got, one, we got one minute. All right, right back here. Give the box there real quick, like one minute, huh? Okay, so uh, we're going to Seth Carlin and... Uh, uh, what is your recommendation on, so, like, new places to hunt? Because a lot of lands, in public lands in Utah, they're huge. And uh, you've, you've hunted this place for a while, but you may, you may question yourself, oh, what does this place have better deer or elk? Should I try that place? Uh, the question is... Uh, ooh kind of what goes into your decision process of should I keep hunting the same place I've been hunting or go to a a new area, whether it's deer, elk, whatever. Okay. Uh, For me there, I, I try to hunt some of the same places time year after year because one, I get to know them a little better and my odds of having success is higher. I spend less time frustrated uh, I probably get, even if it's 300 miles away from my home, I get to know that as good as maybe some of the locals do. Um, but there's also the sense of adventure of going to a new place. Uh, oh, I want to figure this out. I've never seen this. I want to hear that. I want to whatever. So um, I, 
I don't have a real hard and fast rule to it. I, it's what I want out of my hunt. And if that location fits that, uh, that's where I'm going to go. And I'm, I'm usually looking at herd dynamics. Is the herd growing? Is the cow to calf ratio over 30 or under 30? What's the bull to cow ratio? What's the harvest percentages? And, and I'm talking about elk there. Because those are going to give me some ideas of what's the health of the herd. And from that, what the likelihood is that I'm going to have some encounters with elk. Yeah, I think just really quickly to add to that, when you hunt somewhere you know and you've been hunting, you have confidence in it and you have knowledge of it. And that's a benefit. That's a huge factor in success. But there's always that, you know, the grass is always greener on the other side and you always wonder, is it better somewhere? So if you're, being, if you're, if you're having success that you're happy with in an area, I would never leave it. And I, I find myself sometimes pushing a little too hard in that and getting stuck in a rut and realizing I probably need to go somewhere else, whether that's a new unit, whether that's just down the road five miles, whatever it is. If you're not finding success that you're looking for, go somewhere else and keep going until you do find that. And if you are being successful, don't, don't leave it to go somewhere else. There's an old fishing statement. Don't leave fish to find fish. <laughs> don't leave elk to find elk. All right, we have one question from Instagram here really quickly. On Instagram, AJ has the question, if I'm going to Montana for an archery elk hunt, what clothes do I wear? Well, uh, Montana is a big state, like a lot of the Western states, huge variety of terrain and everything else. I would. This is kind of a generic answer, and some people think it's purposely being vague, but it's all about layers. Layers, layers, layers. Because you could be there on September 18th, and it's like today, it's 85 degrees. And you could wake up in your tent on September 20th to three inches of snow. So layering is what allows you to accommodate a wide variety of conditions and a high degree or variability of activity level. So um, that, uh, I know that sounds pretty vague, but... And, and just to explain layering, you've got to have a base layer. So that's what goes against your, your body it removes moisture from uh, perspiring, from sweating. You want an insulation layer, so a vest or something that's gonna keep you warm first thing in the morning. And then you want some kind of an outer layer. And if you're in you know, rain or something, you need something that's at least weather resistant. Uh, if you're not, you can get away with something that maybe is just an added layer of insulation and maybe for light rains, get you through that. Your pants for archery, you're gonna want something, you're gonna be hiking a lot. So you're gonna want something that's comfortable, that's not going to be noisy, that's not gonna be too warm. But again, that's going to, to protect you from the elements if you get into that. So I don't know, if, AJ, if you were looking for specific pieces or, or what we wear. Uh, if you are, maybe send us a message on Instagram and we can yeah. answer that then. But thank you all for sitting in the heat. Yeah. I cannot imagine how hot it is out there. You guys, uh, I... Just and thanks a ton. If you do have more questions, Randy and I are going to be over at the Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls booth at 3 o'clock, and we'll be there for about an hour, and then we'll be right over here at the Gerber booth from 4.15 till 5.15. If you didn't get a chance to answer it or ask a question, we'd be happy to at least shake your hand and uh, try to answer, answer it as best we can. So thanks, everyone, for coming. Thank you.